Questions about an Indiana lobbyist's conflict of interest. Congressional Democrats suing Donald Trump. That, plus an anti-Sharia law rally and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending June 16th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, a report that one of Indiana's leading mental health advocacy lobbyists has been quietly helping a drug company secure a favorable place in Indiana's opioid addiction treatment market. Steve McCaffrey is arguably one of the most influential lobbyists at the State House when it comes to health care and mental health issues. He's led Mental Health America of Indiana for years and has helped guide lawmakers recently on drug addiction treatment legislation. At the same time, McCaffrey lobbies for drug maker Alkermes and its opioid addiction treatment drug Vivitrol, something many key lawmakers say they didn't know. McCaffrey has helped write legislation that cements rules, making it more difficult to access other opioid addiction treatment medications, thus steering physicians towards Vivitrol. McCaffrey's lobbying work for both organizations does not violate any state statutes or rules, and many lawmakers who work with him say while they weren't aware of his relationship with Alkermes, they aren't bothered by it. Does McCaffrey's work, while entirely legal, constitute an ethical conflict of interest? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Joey Fox, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Joey Fox, should this work McCaffrey has done, trouble Hoosiers? No. Uh, lobbying is a fairly well-regulated uh, industry in, in, in Indiana. As long as everybody's properly registered and has disclosed, uh, you know, disclosed what they're lobbying on behalf of, it's not a problem. Steve's a, a well-respected guy in the in, in the in the hallway. Um, lobbyists advocate for the interest uh, you know, th- that pay them to advocate for them, and Steve's been on the front lines of you know working on the opioid epidemic for a long time uh, on this. So. No, I really don't. I don't really see a problem with with what's happened here. I, I don't think I could disagree more. I mean, Steve McCaffrey has been identified with the Mental Health Association for so many years. Nobody else thinks of him in any other capacity. And when you have someone um, whose aura tells everybody who's listening to him that he is the Mental Health Association, and he is also lobbying for a for-profit manufacturer of a drug that they want to insert the definition of in the legislation to make it to make millions of dollars of state taxpayer money go for that drug I mean I don't know whether that drugs the good drug to have or not and I don't really care but I think it's important for anybody voting on legislation like that to be to understand that the person in front of you may have a second agenda and, and I don't think that that's an awful lot to ask of any lobbyist. It's n- nothing here is illegal. He absolutely disclosed everything he was supposed to disclose, which is quite frankly how the reporter found out about a lot of this. But should this be legal? You know, that's, uh, again, something that you run up against with a citizen legislature because they have other jobs. Uh, almost all of them have uh, other jobs, in the, in, both in the legislature 
uh, but also in the hallways. And they do represent a number of people. Many, uh, especially the trend lately, has been you know a firm or an individual representing not a cause, as we've seen with the Mental Health Association for so many years, but many other clients. And I think that's where the problem is, is that, that public disclosure. Yes, the paperwork was filed, but uh, in the story there were, were remarks that uh, legislators who were on that committee uh, didn't know that. He didn't say that when he was uh, appearing before the committee. And it was only after they found out about that that they expressed some concern about it, and I think rightly so. So it's, it, it really is incumbent uh, to understand what the agenda may be. And while it may be painful for people to um, uh, reveal that information or uncomfortable because it may reveal a second agenda, it's not nefarious, it's not bad, and it should be revealed. And with a part-time legislature, you have to have that level of trust, and that's the important thing. John noted that after, in some cases, because the reporter told them, after the, some lawmakers uh, learned of his working for these two different groups, that some expressed concern. But a lot didn't. I should the, they? Should I think they, the, majority, the majority, probably, of, of lawmakers who were interviewed, including the author of the, one of the bills in question, said, no problem. I don't know if uh, my sense is that maybe for reasons that have been articulated here with citizen legislature and, the, and lobbyists serving different clients, maybe the perception now on the part of lawmakers and maybe even, sadly, voters is that this is just how things operate, sort of the cynical notion that uh, maybe this is just, you know, much ado about nothing. Now, um, I will say this, for those, you mentioned the citizen legislature issue, for those who are troubled by this, with the notion of a lobbyist writing legislation, and first of all, we should point out for the uninitiated, well, that happens all, that, all the all time. That, yeah. I'm probably the majority of bills. Are, but then, be th if you're troubled by that, be thankful that this state does not have legislative term limits. Because in states where you can only serve, say, two senatorial terms or, uh, you know, a total of 12 years or eight years, whatever your magic formula would be, that's where lobbyists have an even greater hand yeah, because there is no seniority or no expertise that has an memory, opportunity yeah. to develop. Uh, so be thankful if you're troubled by that, that at least that Joe, you is talked not here. about the disclosures obviously happened in this case and as the story makes clear. But in committee, when he gets up there and identifies himself as Steve McCaffrey from the Mental Health Association, uh, of Indiana, Mental Health America of Indiana, or when he signs in on the sheet of paper that lobbyists, that's mm -hmm. the people who wish to testify, do so in identifying himself that way. Should he also be saying, I'm also here representing this drug company, who the name of whose drug I want you to put in this bill? Should he be saying that in public? Sure. I haven't seen, I haven't watched the, the video in, in this particular case. I don't know what he did or didn't do. I'm a lobbyist, and I, you know, I think it's important uh, as, as lobbyists that we disclose you know who our clients are when, when we're when we're talking to legislators. I'll give you a blanket statement that, yeah, I mean, I think you should be disclosing, you know, on, on whose behalf you're working. A new lawsuit, this time from Democrats in Congress, accusing President Donald Trump of violating the Emoluments Clause. The Constitution's Emoluments Clause requires the President to get permission from Congress before accepting money, gifts, or other benefits from foreign countries. A group of private individuals and business owners first filed suit against President Trump, followed recently by the Attorneys General of Maryland and the District of Columbia. Now nearly 200 House and Senate Democratic lawmakers, including Indianapolis Congressman Andre Carson, brought their own legal action. They allege the president, through his Washington, D.C. hotel and numerous other business interests, is receiving benefits from foreign countries without congressional approval. 
Justice Department lawyers have argued the clause was never designed to prohibit ordinary business transactions. Andalani, is it the proper role of federal lawmakers to be filing this suit? It's the proper role of Congress to be granting waivers of the, for the emoluments clause. That's what the proper role is. That's what the, that's what the Constitution says they should be doing. They're not doing it. I mean, Donald Trump has made this problem. He refuses to release his tax returns. He refuses to completely divest himself of the business interests. And there are legitimate questions about whether or not this is the normal course of doing business for the Saudis to, to spend $250,000 since inauguration in his hotel. Those are questions that need to be answered. And either Congress does its job or the president puts out his tax return and divests himself or this kind of thing is going to happen. And meanwhile, this is taking attention from the important issues out there, like the, the budget that he's trying to pass that's going to hurt so many people, or the health care that he's trying to deprive millions of people of. So I, I, I just wish he'd do as every other president before him has done, and put those tax returns out and divest himself of the business interests, and then we can get this issue behind he us. Is, he is, this, like you said, this is taking attention away from, from things that Congress is trying to do, the things that the president is trying to do. But given that there are already two lawsuits out there, then aren't the congressional Democrats also try, taking attention away from those interests? Well, they, they probably are. But they're trying to get Congress to do its job. I mean, Congress is the one that gives waivers of the Emoluments Clause. And they should have a committee set up. We have seven Republican uh, con congressmen here. Uh, Susan Brooks used to be U.S. attorney. She got on the Benghazi committee. She can't do something like this and say, look, we have a responsibility to the people of the, of the, of the country to have them have faith that the president isn't using his office for personal enrichment. And I think that's a legitimate question, given the fact that now 70% of his real estate deals are done through the back door now. Is this just piling on because there are already two lawsuits out there? I think the the, the fundamental question at the end of the day, um, don't 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 uh, don't get too scared. I agree with some of what what Anne, what Anne said here that there's this is a it's okay. smelling salt. Thank you. Thank you. This is we've got we've got a lot of work to do um, in in the country, and some of this is self-made on behalf of uh, on, on the part of the president um, on leaving these kind of lingering questions out there that will always and will continue to be a be a distraction. Uh, I want to get us back focused on. Uh, well, I disagree with Anne's uh, how she how she described the budget and the in the health care. I do think we need to get back. We still have a debt ceiling to raise, a government to fund, a health care bill to pass, et cetera, et cetera. So, on, so, on. so we need to keep we need to get moving. You know, what's interesting here too is Congress, and we've seen people wanting to grandstand on issues on both sides of the aisle in Congress before, and they'll file suit or be a plaintiff in a suit. And almost always, the federal courts have said you don't have standing. But again, as has been suggested, what makes this fascinating is because it, the Constitution says that Congress itself is the one that, that says yay or nay, there is, I'm no judge, but it seems to me that there is direct standing. So that's a departure from almost 99.9% you know, of other issues where members of Congress, Congress have turned to the courts for relief. Uh, the other thing I would just point out, you talked about Saudis booking rooms. The critics are pointing out that, yeah, that's who's in the rooms on any given night. That's part of it. Bigger question? Who's financing the construction of these hotels in the first place? That's the big money. It's not who's or staying. copyrights being or any, given. Any number of things that are bigger than just who's booking a room. Right. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. 
This week's question, should congressional Democrats be suing Donald Trump? A yes or B no. Last week's question, will Attorney General Curtis Hill run in the GOP's U.S. Senate primary in 2018? 59% say yes, he will. 41% say no. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. A protest against traditional Islamic law drew dozens to downtown Indianapolis this week. It was part of coordinated rallies in 19 states. Speakers warned that if Sharia law merges with the United States legal system, female genital mutilation and honor killings could become common. But when a group of counter-protesters gathered about 10 feet away, the event quickly transformed into a shouting match. Personal attacks made up a lot of the yelling, both sides made threats of violence, and a line of police officers separated the groups. John Schwannis, was this a productive effort on either side? No, as is often the case, you have to define productive. If your goal is to gen up enthusiasm in, within the ranks of your organization, Act America, which is the, the group ostensibly behind this, right. um, you don't want to just sit there and appear to do nothing when it comes to fundraising time or membership time. You can say, look, we were out in 20-plus cities across the country doing these things. And, of course, what does it do? Then that gets the other side riled up, too. And actually, probably in many cities, I think the, uh, the opponents of the anti-Sharia folks outnumbered the anti-Sharia folks, but it also got them stirred. And so maybe they'll be more productive. And will any policy significance come out of it? No, because the U.S. Constitution already would preclude uh, the adoption of religious uh, sanctions anyway. So it's a non-issue. But if, you, if, you're just talk, if you're the membership chairman of that group, then I guess then it's productive. It's productive. To that point that John just made, th this, and numerous legal experts, not that John is one of them, <laughs> I've already, numerous, I've legal, stipulated numerous that. legal experts have said this simply wouldn't be possible. Sharia law... The, the parts of Sharia law that they have problems with simply aren't possible, uh, including in, the, in, in any place in the United States. Right. So is this really an anti-Muslim protest? <laughs> um, that's interesting. Uh, and I'm not a legal expert either. Uh, but I will say it's using uh, the Muslim religion to agitate or stir fears. And so I think that um, to that extent it's just a pathetic uh, attempt to raise money. It's and and I you know I am disgusted by it. It reminds me, John, and remembers the uh, uh, KKK visiting our state uh, probably 15 years ago and holding a series of rallies, and how pathetic and stupid those were. Um, and and it's just you know I'm all for free speech, but these wicked attempts to play on people's fears, uh, real or imagined, are just disgusting. I think that's right. It's all about hate. It has nothing to do with reality. I mean, we've had. We've had religious courts in existence in this country for hundreds of years. The Catholics have them about, re about marriage and mm -hmm. the priesthood. The, uh, the Jewish faith has had them. The Mormon faith has had them. And none of them can transgress on American law. Right. And nor can they be generally implemented. You have to be willing to s submit yourself to them. So it's ridiculous. And it is about hate. And it is disgusting. I agree with you. It's just like the KKK. The organizer of the rally said he didn't, he thought uh, the whole purpose of the rally was misunderstood. It wasn't about anti-Muslim. <laughs> it was really yeah. about anti-Shri. Should he be believed? I think the most important uh, line in your introduction to this story was the fact that you had to use the word dozens in order to, to <laughs> gin up the, the description of the number of people yes. that, sh that showed up to this there thing. Thirteen, right? Right. Yeah, right. Or, or twenty-five, right? Dozen, so, so, right. So, 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 something like this. I think that's the most important piece of the story. This is this isn't right, and you know, but 
And God bless people for being they can organize and say whatever they want, but it doesn't make it right. right. Indiana's Supreme Court is back to its full five members as Governor Eric Holcomb announced his selection of a new justice this week. Wabash County Judge Christopher Goff will become Indiana's 110th Supreme Court Justice. The native Hoosier attended Ball State and IU's Mauer School of Law in Bloomington. He replaces Robert Rucker, the state's first and so far only African-American man to sit on the state's high court. Rucker, as he retired, expressed a desire to see his replacement add diversity to the bench. Governor Holcomb noted the diversity of Goff's family. His wife is African-American. John Katzenberger, is this the diversity you think Robert Rucker was hoping for? You know, based on what Justice Rucker said before he retired, of course not. Um, and I think it is interesting because uh, given the age of the people on the court, everyone is, is under 60 years old. It'll be a while probably before we have another appointment. Yeah. All of that said, um, you know, the, the way the process works and the way it has worked consistently uh, has produced very high quality uh, people to be on the court. No one, I think, would argue with the credentials of Justice Goff or the other two finalists. Um, so while I'm sure um, Justice Rucker is disappointed, uh, while I'm sure it's a disappointment for African Americans or others who uh, hope for minority representation on the court, um, I think they chose someone uh, well qualified. He's a Ball State grad, so it makes him all right. And, um, uh, and I will say, I think they're going to be on the court. This will be the court probably for a long time, barring somebody's unexpected death or resignation. Does Indiana's Supreme Court have a diversity problem? Mm -hmm. Go out on the um, limb, John. Go out on the limb. I do, would you like to see it more diverse and a reflection of the state? Sure. But there have been those, of course, who say the best way to achieve that is to do what other states have done and have popular vote and so forth. I agree with John. I'll give the commercial for Indiana's system right now because it is one of the best, if not the best, in the country with the merit-based system where any member of the public can go and sit through the hearings. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't, which they did. Uh, hear all the candidates, the interviews, based on credentials, qualifications. And you look at other states where there's all, there are dysfunctional courts and a lot of people who are making campaign commercials saying, I'll, I'll use rougher rope when I hang that SOB than, I, than my opponent. That's not the way to have a, 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 engage in jurisprudence. Yeah, I like Indiana's bad. system. Uh, Governor Holcomb made the point, unprompted, of noting the diversity of Judge Goff's family. Sure. Quite frankly, should that matter? I think we take into consideration when we are looking at the qualifications of people, their views, their where they come from, their perspective, their background. Right? Does having an African American uh, you know, wife uh, influence your views over time? Well, of course, right? My wife influences my views all all the all the time. I think I, th I think that <laughs> I think that John uh, John made a, a good point. While I'm sure this is a disappointment to the African American community, uh, I think Justice Goff is uniquely qualified uh, for this role. And I think he'll he'll do a great job. This has nothing to do with Justice Goff's qualifications. I mean, they're, they're excellent. That's fine. So were the other two candidates. And it's not simply race. Okay, we have an all-white court, which we're going to have for a long time. We have one woman on the court, and we have no Democrats on the court. So we have no diversity by race, very little by gender, and none by partisanship. And I think that that is uh, a problem. And, and I think that that shows, I agree, I don't want to see our judges elected popularly like they do in other states. I agree with that. But within that, 
you're supposed to have people that are looking to make certain that the court represents the population. And this court but, does not. But that's not just race. That could also be it's small town race. lawyer, like, as this is, that's versus right. and, and, metropolitan. And, and not it could all, be criminal defense work, not trial all attorney judges. That's right. right. I agree. His, 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 his wife had to take the phone out when the governor called. I guess the story was that he was out on the tractor in the in 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 the field, and his wife had to take the phone out into the into the field to uh, to, to go tell him. We talked a lot about. It doesn't make it diverse. We talked. We talked. Indiana system is lauded by a lot of people, including here today on the panel. But I'm not a legal expert. No, but not a legal expert. <laughs> by not a legal expert, John Schwannis. Yeah. <laughs> but Indiana system also produced, I mean, there were of the 20 applicants, only two were African American. Not many more than that were women. Do we, I mean, we need to have, uh, I think one of the important things about Justice Rucker on the Supreme Court, aside from the fact that he was an excellent jurist, was that he was someone who, an African-American lawyer could say, look, there's a Supreme Court justice. Uh, we need more diversity all through the justice system, um, and it's just reflected at the top here. Um, but we need more who are judges on the appeals court. We need more who are judges in, in the counties, and we certainly need more who are practicing the law all around the state. Speaking of courts, a federal judge this week seemed skeptical of the state's arguments for upholding broad portions of anti-abortion legislation passed earlier this year. Indiana's new abortion law requires parents show some evidence beyond an ID they're a child's legal parent or guardian to give consent for an abortion. Planned Parenthood argues the language is too vague, and federal judge Sarah Evans Barker seemed to agree, saying the, quote, phraseology defies a clear stab at what the statute requires. Another provision bars anyone from helping a pregnant minor get an abortion without consent. Planned Parenthood argues that infringes on free speech rights. Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher says the statute regulates professional conduct. But Judge Barker noted it applies to more than physicians and medical staff, remarking to Fisher, quote, Whoa, that's a little broad. Joey Fox, is it a bad sign when the Solicitor General can't summon much of a defense for parts of a law the legislature created? I am also not a legal, legal expert. I'll, I'll join, the, join the crowd, and I wouldn't try to interpret uh, a judge's questions to, to, to see where, where, things are, where things are headed. That said, Tom Fisher is uh, really an excellent lawyer and represent, represents, the state, uh, represents the state very well in, in, in this case and, and in, in, in all of them that he, that he argues. I think that you've got a, a legislature that by its own admission, you look at the debate that happened around this bill. It happened. This was not. This was not an easy go. Um, th this. This was a very controversial bill. They pushed. Uh, they pushed the envelope uh, on on this very far. And now Tom's got. Tom's got to defend the state, and that's his job. There were questions raised in the courtroom that didn't always have good answers in the courtroom. That were questions in the legislative session, uh, debated on the floor, that good answers were not brought up for. Right. How many more times are we going to do this? Oh, they, obviously they don't care how much money and how much time they waste um, with trying to score points on this. this was, originally, this legislation was so overly broad that it was drafted that you could not, a, a, a young woman could not have an abortion without parental consent, ignoring the fact that many times when that young woman is pregnant, it's because of the, the father or the stepfather or another relative. So they then tried backing uh, up off that ridiculous position they were in, and they did it on the uh, back of an envelope. 
and they didn't think it through, they didn't draft it properly. All they were interested in doing was scoring points. I think Judge Barker's question probably uh, is an indication of where this is going to go. All right. Finally, this week, South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg announced he's heading to Iowa. The rising political star made a splash earlier this year during a run for chair of the Democratic National Committee. Now he's heading to a political event later this year in Iowa, the first state, of course, in the presidential well, primary process, though it's a caucus. And Delaney, Buttigieg 2020? <laughs> I think that's a little premature, but I think uh, Pete impressed a lot of people with his run uh, the last year. He's gotten invitations from other states. He's going around Indiana. He's smart to keep all his options open, but I don't think he's thinking of 2020 as a presidential run just yet. And yet... Invitations from other states, but you take an invitation in Iowa, you certainly have to know. The folks that watch this show will all be West Wing fans, so I feel like I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm safe in saying right, you're going camping in Nashua, right? You're right, 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 you've got to go, got to go. I, uh, I'm just, I'm sure everybody's very excited about about the mayor. I'm sure the people of South Bend wish that he would spend some more time in South Bend, though. He was there today. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Joey Fox, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.